You're listening to the Redeemer London podcast. For more information, visit our website at redeemerlondon.org. She's fantastic, isn't she? You'll be wishing that she was up here doing a bit of a longer talk in a little while, I'm sure. Um, the, my better half, I thought I'd better get her up here. Warm the crowd up. Make sure everyone's into this. But it's so good to be with you guys. Thanks for having us on your International Sunday. Um, we're, we're just so thankful for you guys as a church and for not just for Pete and for you releasing Pete to come and serve us and support us, but thank you, thank you for your prayers. Uh, thank you for your encouragements and support. We're often hearing from Pete about how you're praying for us and we just feel so strengthened that we're part of a bigger family, uh, that it, we're not just off in Istanbul, a small group of 12 of us um, and we're part of a much bigger family, an international family. And we're just so thankful for your support and encouragement. Um, you'll be thankful to know that we've brought you some Turkish delight as well. We, it would be rude, wouldn't it? It would be very un-Turkish for us to come empty-handed. Uh, so we've brought some Turkish delight afterwards with tea and coffee or whatever. We'll enjoy that with you. Um, yeah, it's good to be in Ealing as well. Uh, Pete is often telling me how diverse this borough is. Uh, there's over 100 different languages spoken in this borough, I believe. Is that right? 172, not even close. 172. And my wife and I, before we moved to Istanbul, we were in Bethnal Green uh, in the east of London, and we just love the diversity of London. It's, it's just so amazing. I think it represents so much of God's heart. And on International Sunday, I think, what better place to be than the most diverse borough in the world. Is it, is it in the world? No. <laughs> um, we live in a very diverse city in the Middle East, but it's not as diverse as this. It's not as diverse as Ealing, but we have people from different parts of the Middle East and parts of Eastern Europe in particular. Um, and all living together, I think you always find wherever, wherever there are cultures living together, there's both an opportunity for that unity, but there's also a potential tension, isn't there? And challenges within that as well. Um, and we just, I love the worship, singing in different languages, the same song, singing in different languages. There are a few things, aren't there, that bring cultures together. Music's one of them, where we get to sing together, we can all celebrate that. Of course, sport is another one. So we've got the World Cup coming up soon. So the, the nations of the world come together. Whether it unites us or not, you know, that's to be seen, isn't it? But sport is another one. But another one which I feel is right to talk about today, and I feel like God would really want us to really enjoy this topic and focus on, is the topic of food. Yeah? Does anyone here like food? There's a few people who like food. Great. So... Living in the Middle East, this is something that has really come to life for us. This theme, it's a theme that we see throughout the Bible. It's something God's very passionate about. Uh, and it's not just the idea of food. Food is about sharing a meal. It's an invitation to life together. It's an invitation to relationship together. And as English people, I would say this is something we, we don't really have a good hold of. In a, you know, it's in a general way, I think it's something that many other cultures do much better than English people. I'm just going to put it out there. Uh, whoa! 
But praise God, in this room, we have a very diverse group. You are very blessed with the different types of food and culture and hospitality that we have here. Just wanted to tell you really quickly about two meals uh, from our time in, in Istanbul. Our first meal was about a month after we arrived, and we have some Turkish friends in London who we'd spent a lot of time with, got to know them and their family, and they'd come to faith through doing some just studies in the Bible together over food. And they said, when you go to Istanbul, you must go and see our family. So we were like, okay, whereabouts is it? It's somewhere over here on the Asian side. Okay, we'll find it. We go there. This is a month in. We have no Turkish. We hadn't really thought through the logistics of it, but of course we need to go there for food. So we sat around the table, and they're just like, Merhaba, nasılsınız? Hello, how are you? Is we're good. Siz nasılsınız? And how are you? And then that was about our conversational level over. <laughs> so we sat there at the table, and they're bringing out different you know, special food from their hometown, different flavors and salads and kebabs, and they're bringing this out. And this is just amazing. And we can't communicate with them. The thing is, we have very little in common with them as well. We can't communicate, but somehow they're showing their love for us. And it was an amazing experience, actually. We went away, you know, a Turkish meal is quite a long experience as well. So it was, you know, a good two or three hours not being able to communicate. Uh, it's quite awkward. We've had many moments like this over our time in Istanbul. Uh, but eating together, relationship is found as we eat together. Relationship is found around the table. And our, our last meal before we came back here, we had a breakfast with some Turkish friends. And they said, hey, we'd love to catch up for breakfast before you guys go back to the UK. So we said, brilliant, we'd love to do that. Uh, so we meet them at, say, 11.30. That's early for a breakfast for Turks. <laughs> so we meet for 11.30, and we start having food. Food comes, tea comes, uh, then some more food, then some more tea. Uh, and we sat there talking, sharing life, sharing life, asking them how they're doing, talking about families, work, everything. Uh, and then they said, oh, should we get a coffee? Yeah, let's get a coffee. So we have a coffee. And we realized by the time we said, it's been so great to see you, it's time to go, five hours had passed. Five hours had passed. Does that ever happen in London? I've just never done that in London. But it's where relationship is built around food. As we eat together, we are building and opening up our lives to other people. So we're going to explore this theme together of eating together uh, and this is an invitation to come close. A meal is an invitation to come close. And it's not just being in close proximity to each other. It's about being close and opening our hearts up and being vulnerable. It's about being close in terms of vulnerability. And it's from that place that we're changed and other people are changed as we, as we share our lives. So John Maxwell says this, you can impress people from afar, but you can only influence people if you're up close. Are we close enough to people? Who are we eating with? Who are we eating with? Um, there's, there's something that I've realized about different cultures. Um, there are, we have different walls. We have different cultural walls. So we have an inner wall and we have an outer wall. Now, Westerners tend to have quite a high outer wall. Actually, we don't just go and show 
great warmth and stuff to strangers on the whole. We have quite a high outer wall, but then I would say probably quite a low inner wall. So once we kind of we get introduced, we meet someone, we're connected, that person is, is pretty much welcome to come around for a cup of tea or to meet up with that person. That person is more, uh, they're able to come closer to me. But we have quite a high outer wall, which is why lots of Easterners think we're very cold. Westerners are very cold people. You know, they have these high walls. They don't, they're not, they're not showing warmth to us. But whereas Easterners uh, have a low outer wall, actually they love showing warmth and hospitality to people who are not close to them. They love that. We've, we've seen that so much where we live. But they've got quite a high inner wall because they only allow people they really trust, those people who are really close to them, in to their kind of inner circle. There's a different level of friendship once you're really welcomed in. And in an Eastern context, in a Middle Eastern context, when you're around someone's table, you've been accepted into that inner in a circle, in a friendship level. And I just felt it's, it's just helpful for us to understand there's Westerners and Easterners in the room here, and some people have different higher outer walls, and it seems like there's a distance there. They're, they're holding me at a distance, and some people think, I really want to show that warmth straight away, but it's not being taken the other way. It's not being responded to. And then others, well, I feel like they've been really warm to me, but then they've not really allowed me in. They've not opened up that kind of inner circle to them. And just as we were singing that song at the end, Spirit, uh, spirit Break Out, Break Our Walls Down, or Tear Our Walls Down. I just felt like this whole picture of our different cultural walls, actually, God wanted to highlight today. He wants to tear some of these walls down so that we can have close, so that we can have vulnerable, close relationships. So, we're going to look at a parable today from Luke 14. You can follow it if you want. Luke 14 from verse 15 to 24. And Jesus is traveling through a village. And of course, in the Middle East, he's going to be looked after well. Hospitality is a high value And so he's invited for a meal. It would be a big shame if he wasn't invited for a meal as he passes through a village. So the religious leaders, they invite him around for a meal. And Jesus is the guest there. And he starts giving them some tips about how they can throw a good dinner party. And he says, it's best to invite people who can't return the invite. It's best to invite the needy. And then one person responds to Jesus by saying, Well, blessed is he who should eat the bread of the kingdom of God. And uh, bread is a serious deal in the Middle East. Uh, We've we've noticed this. Bread is a big deal. If bread is not part of a meal, it's not a meal. Um, And we had some friends around um, who were exploring questions of faith, and we were talking with them about the Lord's Prayer, where Jesus teaches us to pray for our daily bread. And we were talking through it, and we prayed that prayer at the start of the meal, and then the food, Ames brought some food over, and there was no bread. And he was, he was looking at us like, where's the bread? <laughs> oh, we haven't got bread with this meal. You know, there's rice, or there's, you know, there's different carbs. Um, 
But he said, well, we've just prayed for bread. Je- <laughs> Jesus taught us to pray for bread. We've prayed for it, and now there's no bread. So anyway, it's a serious deal. But it's not just about the bread, of course. This is, when this guy's saying this, it's a challenge that, for Jesus to express his views about this messianic banquet, this eating in the kingdom of God. It's about the end time feast, when Jesus returns and there's this great feast that's going to happen among all the people. Now, Jesus would be expected at that point to respond to that question about this feast. What did Jesus think about it? And he'd probably be expected to say something like this, Oh, that we might keep the law in a precise fashion, so that when that great day comes, we would be counted worthy to sit with the Messiah and all the true believers at his banquet. But, when did Jesus ever say what we expected him to say? He decides to pick up this actually really sensitive subject, a 700-year-old subject, and tell a story, which was pretty shocking. So we're just going to really quickly look at the background, and then I'm going to tell the story. We're going to draw a few, uh, a few lessons from it, and then we're going to eat of a feast as well. So Isaiah 25, verse 6 to 9, is the first time that we see this word about the feast. And it says this. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a a feast of rich foods for all the peoples and a, a a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all the peoples, the sheet that covers all the nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. It's this amazing picture. On the holy mountain, guests from all the nations will eat together. Death will be at an end. Tears will be wiped away. And it's going to be a glorious day of salvation. But something really significant had happened in the, among the people of Israel. About 100 years after this prophecy, they'd been taken off into exile into Babylon. And while they were there, they were assimilated into the culture. They were kind of forced to take on Babylonian culture. And Ames and I, we know what it's like to bury ourselves in a culture. For two years, we've been learning language as much as possible. One time, we spent a week just staying with a a Turkish family and we, we banned English, so we're just speaking Turkish, and it's, it was exhausting. It was really exhausting. But these guys were pressured into losing their native tongue when they were in Babylon. And that's a whole different level, isn't it? That's not something they're deciding to do. And then, in this adopted language of theirs, they wrote the scriptures again. When they came back, a couple of decades later, they came back, and they, the way they wrote Isaiah... 25, I think is quite interesting for us. This is really what they were thinking at the time. It says this. This is the revised version. Yahweh of hosts will make for all the peoples in this great mountain a meal. And although they suppose it is an honor, it will be for them a shame and great plagues, plagues from which they will be unable to escape, plagues whereby they will come to their end. Well, that's quite different, isn't it? Apparently, Isaiah's vision of this great feast had become so unpopular, they decided to completely rewrite it. 
And it's not the only one. There are two other sources at the time. There's a book called the Book of Enoch. Uh, And then just around the time of Jesus, the Qumran sect who wrote the Dead Sea Scrolls, famous for writing them, they both mention this banquet. And they affirm that all the nations are going to be there. But they say the angel of death will also be present to destroy them. And then the other states that no one would attend if they were paralyzed in hands or feet or lame or blind or deaf or dumb or smitten in the flesh with a visible blemish. So Isaiah's beautiful vision, which saw the faithful Jew and the Gentile coming together in unity at God's invitation, seems to have gone pretty badly wrong, doesn't it? And this banquet has suddenly become something actually pretty desperate quite elitist, quite nationalistic. And because of this understanding, the religious leaders at the time of Jesus wouldn't eat with common people. They'd separated themselves because they didn't want to share their table. They didn't want to eat with others. So you can imagine they hated Jesus, who was then eating with the tax collectors and the sinners, and which is why they're constantly mentioning it. They don't like that he is eating with these people. He's opening up. He's taken down. He's not separated himself. He's taken down the wall and he said, I'm accepting the tax collectors and the sinners. Those people that they thought shouldn't be at the banquet. So it's in this context that Jesus tells a story. Okay. So Jesus begins a story like this. He says, a man once gave a great banquet and he invited many guests So straight away, the listeners know that he's talking about this great end-day feast. And of course, being in a Middle Eastern village, the host of the banquet sends out his servant and invites a whole group of people, a group of his friends. And he goes around the village. And the people are either accepting or declining the invitation, after which the host can say, right, what kind of meat shall I get? What kind of meat shall I prepare? How much shall I prepare? And he gets ready because he wants to give an amazing feast because it's for his honor and because he loves hospitality. He loves to show hospitality and host a great banquet. And when the day of the banquet arrives, then he would send word to these people who have accepted. After having butchered the meat and got that ready and prepared it and put lovely kind of spices and whatever on the meat, after preparing the mezes and the fresh bread, just when everything was ready, then he would send his servant again a second time and say, come, now everything is ready, please come to the meal. And usually at that point, what, you, what would you expect the guys who have said, yeah, I'm coming, and all the food's been provided? Of course, you'd be expecting them to be there ready. Okay, we're ready, and we're going to set off. Now we're going to walk to the host's house, We're going to have a wonderful meal. But this story goes slightly differently. The first guest had brought a field, he said. And now he needs to go and inspect the land to make sure it's all right. Uh, And the servant pauses a little bit because he's not sure how to respond. Buying a field is not a small decision. And particularly making sure is this land good for farming It's a long, long, painstaking experience in the Middle East. How much rainfall does it have? What's the yield on this field? 
I'm going to test that before I buy it. So this guy's saying, I bought a field, and now I'm going to go and see and inspect it. It's ridiculous. It's as if we would say, okay, I've bought a house, and now I'm going to go and get the surveys done on it. Now I'm going to go and inspect if it's all right, if the foundations are okay. No, we do that before, don't we? But really what's going on is this guy, he's made a ridiculous excuse because he wants to shame the host. So he wants to insult and dishonor the host. So anyway, the servant moves on. He goes to the second guest. And the second guest responds like this. He says, well, I've just bought five yoke of oxen. And now I need to go and test them. And I'm not sure how many farmers we have in the room. How many farmers in the room? Not many. No, I wasn't expecting any healing. But any good farmer would know... (laughs) My dad's a farmer, he would tell me. But a yoke of oxen, you test how fast do they go. Are they, are they the same strength? Are they the same speed? Because they need to pull together. If they don't pull together, then they're pretty useless. So this guy's just bought five yoke of oxen, and now he's going to go and test them. Completely bizarre, completely ridiculous. And the servant who'd gone to go and see if he's coming is getting angry at this point. He's not sure how to respond. He thinks he's clearly just making an excuse to shame my my master. So again, he thinks, I'm just going to move on. Anyway, we're going to make this banquet great anyway. These guys can do their thing. They're not going to spoil the banquet. So he decides to move on. The third guest comes out of his house in his dressing gown, and he says, I've just married my wife, so I'm going to be busy tonight. There's a late little, uh, late inclusion, I thought, of the, the latest marriage. He comes out and he says, sorry, I'm busy this evening. I mean, this is shocking. This is shocking. He's not even asked, asking to be refused. To... I'm losing my English. He's not, he's not even uh, requesting t- to say to the master, can I be excused from the banquet? He's just come out and said, I've just got married. I'm busy tonight. I mean, this is offensive. It's shocking. And it's out of the three excuses, this is definitely the most offensive one. And it's clear from this point, the servant realizes, okay, all of these guests have got together and they're trying to ruin the banquet. They basically don't want this banquet to happen. So he moves on. He's heard enough. He's going to go back to the master and let him know what's happened. So what's our equivalent? What's our equivalent in our setting? What might it be like? In the West, we also have this two-stage invitation to a meal. We call someone up, don't we? Or we message them or we WhatsApp. Hey, Friday evening, 7 o'clock, do you want to come around for a meal? Got some people coming. I'd love to see you. So then you get a yes or a no. Okay, great. People will then arrive at 7.30. That's the usual time, isn't it? 7.30, everyone into the lounge, you know, take a comfortable seat. The food will be ready, you know, in a, in a little while, 15 minutes or so. Then the food comes. Right, the food's ready. Would you like to come through and eat? Come to the table. Come and sit up. We're going to eat. So it's like at that stage, imagine at that stage of the evening, just as you're about to invite someone to the table, the guys who are there in the lounge say, oh, sorry, uh, I've actually got something on tonight. There's the, 
I'm going to watch the football game tonight, one says. Uh, the other says, oh, I've just bought a house and I need to check it out. Uh, the other says, I've, got, I've had the decorators in, but I, just, I wasn't sure if it was the right color that they chose. So they all leave and gradually say goodbye and leave. And there's the host, completely dumbfounded about what's happened. That is what we're talking about in this story. That's what's happening. After such crazy excuses, can you imagine the master of the house, how let down he felt, how angry he feels, how upset, what a waste of time, what a waste of money? And especially because these excuses are completely bizarre. Fake apologies, they're just insults to him. They're trying to embarrass him. He must have felt this huge, huge rejection. So what does he do with this? What does the host do with this anger? Does he get some boys together and say, right, we're going to teach these guests a lesson. Go around house by house, and we're going to teach them a lesson. Because that, in a shame on a culture, that's what you do. If you've been shamed, the only way to regain your honor is to shame them. But how does he respond It says this, so the servant came and reported to his master. Then the householder, in his anger, said to his servant, go out quickly into the streets and lanes of the city. Bring in the poor, the maimed, the blind, and the lame. The host turns his anger into this unbelievable outpouring of grace. This unbelievable outpouring of love. What do we do when we feel a sense of injustice against us? What do we do when we feel humiliated? This energy that builds up, this anger. The host takes this new and completely surprising course of action. This is what the kingdom of God is like. It's costly, but it turns the anger of humiliation and rejection into an opportunity for grace. Instead of gathering a group of men and marching out and teaching these guys a lesson, he decides to choose the exact people the Qumran sect and others had said shouldn't be at the great banquet at the end and welcomes them into the banquet. So we see this, that the servant said, Sir, what you've commanded has been done and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Okay, then go out into the highways and the hedges and compel people to enter that my house may be filled. And as the banquet starts filling up, with this second round of invitees, these outcasts that shouldn't have been included in the banquet in the view of the people that Jesus is talking to, the servant realizes there's more empty seats. And so he goes quickly to the master. He says, sir, there's still room. There's still room. We could still invite some people. And it's only then the master says, okay, then go out and compel more people to come in. We're going to extend the invite even wider. And the point the master is making is not take people by force and bring them into the house because it must be filled. He's not saying force people into the house. He knows what the response is going to be when he sends his servant out, out of the village to people who have no social status and say, you're invited to a great banquet. And they're going to say, yeah, right, mate, uh, and keep walking. No, no, come on. You're definitely invited. You're welcomed. You're welcome. The master wants you to come. Would you come? He knows that when they go out and invite people out 
of the village, out of their context, they're going to need to be compelled in. They're going to have a very hard time believing that they're really wanted at all. It's the same for us, isn't it? On first exposure, the grace of God, the love of God is very hard to believe, isn't it? You don't want to accept it. So, the messenger will need some special way to convince the outsiders that they are indeed invited, that they are wanted. And the master's saying, I want you to convince them that this invitation is for them and that they are genuinely welcomed. And this third group of invitees outside of the village, this is symbolic of the nations. It's symbolic of the Gentiles, the nations outside of Israel, who during Jesus' lifetime have been largely unapproached. It's not like Jesus has taken a quick trip to Spain or to France or England just to connect with people. They've been largely unapproached. But this story is also reflecting where Jesus' ministry is up to as well. He's invited. The first guests have rejected him. The second guests have started to come into the banquet already. And he's saying there's a third lot of guests who will be invited. The invitation to the Gentiles is realized in Acts 10, where Peter sees this, this, this sheet coming down, and he says the, the Gentiles are to eat with us also. It shows that they're invited into the banquet as well. And it continues with Paul in Acts 13, the outworking of this invitation to this third lot of guests. They're to compel those who don't feel worthy, those who are less honored cultures, are to come in. There's no second-class guests at a banquet. Any slightly looked down upon cultures around us, I wonder. Any people who we look upon and think, yeah, I mean, they're just not sure about those people. Not sure about those guys. Not sure about that estate. Not sure about people who work in this, this kind of job. Those are the ones who are to be invited. There are no second-class guests at the kingdom feast. No people groups, job titles who have any lesser honor in this banquet. So the outcasts and the outsiders are invited to this banquet. So I want to ask us, who are we eating with? Who are we eating with? Are we eating in the same way as Jesus is talking about here? In our homes, in our workplaces, in our community, are we opening up? Are we lowering those walls to invite people in who are from those backgrounds. Jesus concludes his story with this. Jesus, directing his words at the religious leaders he's eating with, he says, for I tell you, I tell you all, none of those first men who were invited shall taste my banquet. That's this huge. He's talking to the religious guys at the time. And he says, the invitation is there for you as well. The invitation is there. But you, you are also invited. But if you re- reject the invitation, then the feast will continue without you. And by rejecting Jesus, these religious leaders were unable to shut down the banquet. It's what they wanted to do. They wanted to stop this banquet from happening. But by rejecting Jesus, they weren't able to stop it. It continued. 
the banquet continued without them. And in Isaiah 56, verse 6 to 8 says this, Those from other nations will join, them, join themselves to the Lord. Their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For those of my house shall be, shall be called a house of prayer for the nations. Thus says the Lord, who gathers the outcasts of Israel, I will gather yet others to him besides those who are already gathered. So we see this amazing vision in Isaiah of being the great host, Jesus, is fulfilling this great desire and this great desire of the nations coming together that we see in Isaiah. Firstly, the religious faithful are invited. Second, the outcasts, the eunuchs, the blind, the lame. And third, he will gather those others who have not yet been gathered outside of those who have been gathered the nations of the world that's us that includes english indian african these that means us that means the invitation has come to us the banquet has begun and the outcasts are filling up the banquet and the invite is made to all So as we close, let's just reflect on some of these key themes that we've seen in the story. It's not a three-point sermon, unfortunately. I'm sorry. It's been slightly more Middle Eastern. We've wanted to look at a story, and there's been so much that we've looked at. We've seen Jesus is the great host. Jesus is the unique one who's able to bring about this vision in Isaiah of joining all the nations. No excuse is valid to turn down this banquet All the excuses are just insulting and unacceptable to the host. Anger, suffering, and costly love. The host experiences the pain and rejection of those who've turned down the invite. And it's exactly what we see at the cross. We see where God's anger at sin is responded to in an outpouring of costly love through Jesus. We see outsiders and outcasts being honored Those who have done nothing to be invited are invited, they're included, they're welcomed. Where they struggle to believe that they were really invited, special honor is shown to compel them into the banquet. It's a limitless invitation. We are those who take the good news of this open banquet to everyone, every nation, culture, people group. There are no barriers. The invitation will not be shut down. To participate in this banquet, what do we need to do? We must enter the house. We see we can't just accept the invitation from afar. We have to enter the house. We can accept it, but then not actually come. We have to enter into the house. And the banquet has already begun. It's begun and more and more adjoining as we anticipate the final banquet when Jesus returns again. Amen. All right, and we're going we're gonna to now have communion as we always do, uh, as you always do. I'm including myself. Uh, it's a foreshadowing of this great banquet. So every time we do communion, it's a foreshadowing of this great banquet. We all get to come together. We're invited right now to take part in this great messianic banquet. So it's a foretaste. It's coming. This great banquet is coming where all the nations are going to be together and we're going to have this great feast. And now this is what we're doing as well. We remember Jesus invited us to the banquet and we affirm the invitation is for all those around us as well. 
we come to Jesus, the great host, celebrating the costly love and grace he has shown and poured out in his life, the place where outcasts and outsiders were honored, and a limitless invitation was given, inviting us to enter into his household. So how are we going to take this today? I'd love us, when we respond, to, to let the walls down, to take our walls down a little bit and perhaps go to someone who we think, ah, oh, there's not any relationship there, there's distance there, there's, or even just this person I just don't know, they're very different from me. And to go and we're going to share communion together. We're going to do it in, in pairs, I believe. But can we do that? Can we go and go to someone and share with someone as a foretaste of this great banquet where we're going to share with people from every nation and every tribe? And maybe if you're here for the first time today, you've, you've heard this invitation of Jesus to this banquet. This might be the first time you've, you've heard anything like this. It feels like, no, surely I'm not invited to this. <laughs> Jesus wants to compel you right now. He wants to invite you to this banquet. Why don't you come up as well and say to someone, hey, I really want to partake in this. Would you pray for me? Would you share with me? It's an invitation to all of us today.